Hi friends, I'm excited to tell you that I have my first sponsor. So, Friends of Dorothy believes that everyone should be able to express themselves freely and proudly without fear of discrimination or prejudice. So they've created a fantastic product range with the best and most meaningful items, carroting towards tops, bottoms, and all you versatile individuals out there. Whether you're looking to enhance your sex life or simply express yourself, they've got you covered. Now, here's the best part. Our listeners get an exclusive 10% discount at friendsofdorothy.co.uk if you're using the code TUCKER10. That's TUCKER10 and you'll get 10% off your order. As you know, I do this podcast for free, driven by my passion to share amazing content with you all. So if you enjoy what you hear at Digging for Bones, it would mean the world to me if you could just stop and show some love for Friends of Dorothy. Just head over to their website and use the code TUCKER10. And if you find a product that suits you, give it an order. It's a fantastic way to show them some support and show me some support in return. Hi, friends. Welcome to Digging for Bones. On today's episode, I have Michael Espinoza with me. And wow, they're just an incredible artist that I've been really looking forward to having on the show. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my God. Every time I get to hang out with you, every time I get to see you, it's such an incredible pleasure. So thank you very much. I really enjoyed getting enjoyed getting to know you over this last year it's been been quite the experience uh do you mind if i share how we met (laughs) that's my favorite story yeah of course we met at there's an event that happens here in portland called stubtown strokes um it's one of my favorite events it's a men's mutual masturbation um party i guess you could say um but really the main rules of this event are no lips below the hips and no penetration um and i know for a lot of you you're like what why uh but it's (laughs) it's fucking magical um just like being tied up i think when you add some kind of restraint or sensory deprivation into your play sometimes it can really make things really interesting and this event is just really interesting because it takes away the go-to things you normally jump to and it forces you to get intimate on other levels and we got intimate and i've always that's one of my favorite experiences at that event was when i first met you yeah we had a lot of fun um there was another guy that we were playing with and we got really hot and heavy and i feel like there's an um there's a threesome there that needs to happen um that we need to arrange like asap that was it was a good time it was. um so to start could you tell us our listeners a little bit more about who you are your artistic journey yeah absolutely um so uh i am a self-taught artist um living in portland oregon um and uh, i say always say self-taught because um it's important to recognize that I didn't, I was never trained to be an artist. I never took an art class. Um, I was never mentored by academic artists. It's entirely possible to have a, an art career that's just built from the ground up. Um, and I'm happy to mentor anyone who's interested in that. Um, so uh, I started my practice back in about 2017 when I uh, started exhibiting um, installation, which is where you take a bunch of stuff and put it in a place um, in a specific way. And also um, did uh, performance art, uh, and um, my performance art kind of took on the the um, shape of a ritual. So I created public rituals. Um, it wasn't. It was not very possible during the pandemic to make um, performance art because audiences were scarce, and um, there weren't a lot of places to put installation art. So I started making um, objects at home. Uh, using whatever materials I had access to, which at the time um, I had a latent skill of doing embroidery. And I picked that up again during the pandemic. And I started making a a bunch of embroidered pictures for my own photography. Um, And uh, that has evolved into a full-time art career. Um, My practice involves photography. Um, It involves transforming that photography into handmade embroidery. And then using the combination of photography and embroidery to depict various aspects of queer intimacy, um, and the 
by intimacy, I often specifically mean sex. Um, I am taking a lot of pictures of people that I have sex with or people um, that are that are enjoying the splendor after we've just had sex. Um, but I'm also portraying intimacy in a lot of other ways. I've started taking a series of pictures of um, rumpled up bed sheets to kind of um, portray the ghosts of, of where the intimacy existed. Um, I'm showing uh, pictures of other artists and um, also pictures of the backs of of Polaroids um, to represent other various forms of, of intimacy. Um, and uh, so I'm currently in this like middle stage of my, of my practice where I'm moving into a bigger studio and I'm participating in a, um, in a cooperative gallery and I have some um, pretty ex pretty big exhibitions coming up um, that unfortunately I can't tell your listeners about right now, but I'm sure that when um, those big things are, I'm able to talk about them, you'll share them on your social media for all of your fans. I love that. Your work is beautiful. And to give, give you all just a little, like some of the art that I've seen, it, it just give you a visual, like just imagine like a Polaroid of a really happy, just nutted human being or just pleasured person. And half of it is stitched and embroidered and it's just beautiful. There's such a feeling that it invokes of just creativity. Um, I don't know. I just get such warmth and love from, from your work and it makes me feel human, um, which is why I love it so much. And also just having lived in it and experienced it with you, just see, there's a picture of you in my car. Uh, cause one time you took a photo of me and then you had me take a photo of you and you gave me that photo and I still have that photo in my car. Um, so it's just, it's, I know you like, you actually live that your, your creative process as well. It's a part of who you are and it's really admirable. Yeah. Um, that's actually a really important part of, of the foundation of my practice is that, um, I'm trying to build a community. I'm trying to participate in a community. Um, there's a kind of a spiritual reason for everything that I do. And it's that I believe that we as queer people have to generate culture together um, to assert that our existences are valid. And we actually have to like work together to teach each other how to survive. Um, we've done it so many times in our history. Um, uh, I think a really good example um, that is, is probably familiar to a lot of your listeners is that um, during the height of the AIDS crisis in the late 80s and early 90s, um, gay men taught each other how to use condoms. Uh, there was no reason before uh, HIV for people to for people who had sex with the, the same uh, sex, like um, men who had sex with men, for them to use condoms. It just didn't make sense. There was no reason for it. Um, and then AIDS came around and... Uh, when as soon as we as a community learned how to prevent the spread of HIV by using condoms, we adopted that practice very quickly. We taught it to each other, and so this is just a uh, just a really um, potent example of why it's so vital that we create communities so that we can teach each other literally how to survive, but also how to like survive and thrive in a world where um, there's a lot of forces that wish to to you know subject us to oppression. I love that. And I wasn't, I mean, I was around for a part of the AIDS crisis, but I was too young to really understand what was happening. But just in my own lived experience, I watched our community band together with like monkeypox. That's um, a great example. And I, I heard more from my peers than I did online. If anything, I, I felt like I was getting demonized. Um, I had, I had a friend reach out to me once and ask me, so like, does monkey box come from butt sex? And it was a really innocent question and he didn't mean it to be offensive, but it was. Um, and yeah. I, it was just like so much of that education and being able to respond to him the way it did came from what I heard from my peers. Um, and even just this last weekend at Folsom, uh, at Deviance, I was shocked and, and, and also in love. I don't know if you, got a chance to go to the second floor where the monkeypox and prep yeah, booth was. I did. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was beautiful. They like they mm -hmm. like set up this like really beautiful 
booth. It was like in, I don't know the name of the lights, but when you turn letters and you put the little light bulbs in the letters. Yeah, those like old timey like theater lights. Yeah. yeah. And they had, just to give you guys an example, you're at this like wild, crazy, four multi-layer party of dancing and sex and BDSM and kink. And in the corner, <laughs> there's this like lit up area that says Doxy Pep and Monkey Pox. <laughs> yeah. And, and there was just- like someone's, like one of the people working there, she she could have been someone's aunt Sharon and she was like, okay, get over here. Like, like, <laughs> Hey, is everyone back? It was so cute. I, yeah. And I just, I really like, I like to see public health in settings like that because like that really is a, is a, an amazing strategy for reaching us where we're at. You know, yeah. it's just like, and, and so I went to Folsom last year and that was like kind of as we were all starting to get monkey pox, um, vaccines and i i wouldn't have gone if i hadn't been able to get my monkey pox here because i knew that the Folsom last year could have really like been a huge exposure site um so anyway the first thing you saw when you walked in through the um entrance uh, all of the entrances of the Folsom street fair last year in 22 were um uh monkey pox vaccination sites um you just fill out some paperwork and you could get your um, your monkeypox vaccination right there at the Folsom Street Fair. Amazing, incredible. How was Folsom for you? Oh gosh, <laughs> um, Folsom was really fun. This is my second year going to Folsom. Um, last year, I pretty much walked through the fair. Um, maybe spent, if I was being generous with myself, thirty minutes in the fair, and then I walked into a house party. Um, house party is just a cute euphemism for sex party and i didn't leave that party until uh the fair was over <laughs> so i actually didn't have um i mean i went i quote went to Folsom, um and i did go to some parties before um the actual fair that were really fun i went to stank um last year and i also uh went to a really cute like um party just like a house party with some old leather queens and had a really good time but yeah i did not really get to enjoy a lot of the fair um so this year i went and um i i kind of had a little more bit more freedom i was able to kind of move around um kind of just to find people and do whatever i wanted to do and i i had a really good time um i definitely participated in some of the things you hear about happening at the Folsom street fair um, I definitely got unconsensually filmed by lots of people, um, which is, uh, I guess, something I kind of intuitively expected and was um, fortunately kind of like comfortable with. Um, I don't really have anything to lose um, by being filmed uh, personally. So um, that's a that's a privilege that I have. Um, and I just I saw what I what I call glimpses of utopia on the streets there. Um, and utopia literally means no place. So it's, it's not like a future that I'm looking for this utopia. It's actually like an, uh, entirely alternate way of existing. So I saw people participating in sharing love and intimacy in ways that are usually kept completely private in completely public settings. And I, I just started imagining an, an alternative future where we share love with each other freely and openly. And when the um, desire rises within us. We like express that love to each other in any way, um, using our bodies. And I just think that's really, really cool. Um, and like I was, I was on the, um, now I'm on the soapbox. Sorry. Um, (laughs) I was on the internet, I was on Twitter and I was on, on Instagram looking, looking at pictures of that people had posted of the fair, mostly like professional photographers taking pictures of people with their consent. And I realized that there's a very narrow body type that's usually represented in these pictures. It would be easy to look at pictures after Folsom and be like, oh, I guess only hot people go to Folsom. But the thing was about the fair this year that I really got to appreciate was that I saw all bodies. I saw all body types. I saw all abilities. I saw all colors. I saw all gender expressions. Um, I saw all ages. There were so many, there were so many people of different ages, um, and it was just, it was incredible. Um, I'll add of age. <laughs> um, all people. Yes, of course. Um, 
Yeah, I, I saw, you know, because like a lot of our sex spaces can be dominated by a younger type um, or um, be kind of um, uh, clustered around a certain age group. And like, yeah, I saw people in, that looked to be in their 70s and 80s and I saw plenty of people in their 20s and everything in between. And I just think that that's really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. And then, yeah, I yeah. went to the Deviance Party too. Um, afterwards, we, we ran into each other there. And um, that party was really fun. Um, and that, what I really loved about it was that if you didn't love the music that you were listening to, you could just go up one floor or go down one floor and um, there would be a whole other uh, DJ, a whole other dance party. Um, yeah, one of my um, one of my partners who lives in Seattle just happened to be in town. We met at that party and um, yeah, we definitely enjoyed plenty of time on every single floor. I love that. I didn't get to stay at Deviance as long as I wished I would have. Uh, this was my first full sum, and hearing you talk about your first one and your second one is giving me a little bit more hope. Mm. I had title holder stuff to do, so I'll back up to the first full sum. First party I went to was Stink. Absolutely loved it. I got to meet Xander and Mowgli, who are two of my favorite pups uh, mm. that I just admire. And I had both of them in my armpits for the stank competition. And I didn't win. I lost to this other guy who he smelled okay. Um, I didn't think I smelled better, but you know. Um, but it, it was a really cool party. I got to bond with them and really hang out with them afterwards. The next night, I actually ended up in the ER. So I went to Big Muscle, had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my testosterone injections actually got infected. So I ended oh, up I'm in sorry the ER. So mm-hmm. I missed out all on Saturday night. The next day, I had a bunch of title holder stuff to go do, go to as well. Um, I had title holder brunch, and then I got—I was so privileged to get invited to Mr. Christopher and Amp's Bloody Mary party. But I literally—I was only, at that—I was at that party too. We just missed each other. I, I realized that today. <laughs> yeah, I—I I only had an hour to spend there, and I, it was—it I just felt so bad. I really wanted to stay, and all these people I saw in photos after I left were there. But I had—I have a commitment because I won a title, and I had to go to this. And I feel honored. I shouldn't say I had to. I was very honored and privileged to get to go to the Eagle to get announced as a title holder at Folsom. Except that went until like 1.30. And at this point, I finally get to the fair and I end up at a house party. Um, just another. Yeah, which wor- which one? Right. Was it, uh, was it the one over the driftwood? No, this was the one right behind. Um, oh, what's that leather bar? Uh, Powerhouse. They, they live huh. right behind Powerhouse. Um and so by the time I got on the fair, it was like 3.30 and it was so crowded that like at Dory, I actually like felt like I could cruise and meet people mm-hmm. and have fun. I could yeah. barely see vendors, yet alone like walk around. Um, I got down two scenes with two individuals. Uh, I, I met Mr. LA, who I'd met earlier, really lovely person, um, which I, it was really funny. We started our scene and then one of my friends who I adore and haven't seen in a long time walked up right as we started and i was like oops sorry i friends first <laughs> this is over i'm gonna go hang out with my friend now you were great um <laughs> met a really amazing pup who didn't want to be filmed so we went and found our own little private space which i respected mm-hmm. yeah. um but i i didn't feel like i really got to see Folsom the way i wanted to and like everybody i would cruise or there was like the two mario brothers luigi and mario who were hot who were like <laughs> calling me when they walked by and i was talking to friends and i was like hang on a minute i'm gonna go take take them up on that and i like turned around and they were gone um and there was just so many moments like that where i'm like oh and they're gone and oh, now, now i don't know where they went and mm-hmm. I, I don't know i'm hoping next year when i do Folsom, i want to go from the beginning and i think where i usually like to be alone uh Folsom, i felt more it felt more festival vibes where I, like i want to go on a quest um i saw a couple of my friends and they were all together and they looked like they were on a journey and i think i want to go role play the whole day Mm -hmm. and be in a headspace of role play the whole time Mm -hmm. this time yeah and and really like be a character next time um which was a little different than dory so i think that next time i have a different plan for Folsom to really just go play um which i didn't feel like i got to do um and then deviance i got to go to for a couple hours um, and then I went to real bad. Uh, I then, felt really privileged to have that ticket. Everyone told me it's a really hard party to get into. So I didn't, didn't want to miss that. Cause I don't know if I'll be able to go again. And it turned out it was, it was adorable. It was hot. It was real bad. There, There's no other yeah. way to put it. 
The best part of that party, though, is at like three o'clock in the morning, they brought out popsicles for everybody. (laughs) It was my favorite part of the whole night. Just like everyone's all hot and raunchy and fucking and dancing. And it's just, it's everything you can imagine. And everybody pauses to suck on a popsicle and just take a breather and enjoy. Oh my God, that's so sweet. My daddy's daddy went through so much drama to get those popsicles there. So I am going to tell him how much that meant to you. And it's going to, he's, he's going to be really uh, honored to hear that. It was just great because I felt like people paused and I got to like talk to my friends for a second and people stopped hunting necessarily for a moment and people just chilled for just yeah. a second and like re- recouped for a moment. And it was and then. Honestly, the next three hours were even hot and heavier. And I think it's because that popsicle break of just everyone chilling around and eating popsicles was just, it was really beautiful. Um, Well, cool. Well, I'm glad you had a great fulsome. I I feel like I had a really great fulsome. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Let's get back into your work. Uh, Mm -hmm. So your work is described as embodying, embracing the artistic practice of queer ancestors how do you draw inspiration from the past while creating art that's relevant to the present? Yeah. So when we talk about ancestors, I'm, um, I'm very purposely talking about queer people who've existed in all times. Um, and, uh, so I have a spiritual practice that involves, um, kind of claiming queer ancestors, thinking about, um, people who existed in all times who lived queer lives. Um, some of those people have names that we can speak. Some of those people don't have names that we can speak. Um, and so we have to use our imaginations to kind of um, figure out who they are. And um, what I do in my spiritual practice is I invite the presence of these queer ancestors um, into my presence, into my life, into my body. Um, and I think of my art practice specifically as uh giving myself over to what they wish to express. Um, now this sounds super like woo woo and, and, uh, and I, 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 I'm willing to talk with like serious art people about it being actually conceptual framework. Um, but I do, uh, fundamentally believe that I have an ongoing devotional relationship to queer ancestors. And that that is the guiding force of my practice. Um, so the word embodying that you just use, like I'm, it, I'm, saying that literally i i wish to embody um the undone artistic practices specifically um the ways in which uh queer people have been exposed to persecution um and then therefore have not been able to fully express themselves artistically um i you know knock would live in a time when i am able to fully express myself in my queerness and i think that that is a is a special privilege that I do not wish to waste, um, especially given the history of persecution that um, queer people have um, have been subjected to. Have does been. that answer your question? It does, <laughs> and it and it it brings, you know, I'm I I won't sugarcoat it. I'm scared. There a lot of that history in the oral history I hear from people who are older than me. This year I've gone, I've had the privilege of sitting down with older queer and gay and uh, trans people and hearing stories who are much older than me. And I get nervous sometimes because then, you know, you're not supposed to read the comments, but I do. You're not supposed to watch the opposing viewpoints sometimes, but I do. And the stuff I hear is really scary. And I feel like the art, art has always just been this way to bring people together and let them know that they're not alone, that there is this community out there, but also so that those stories continue to get told so that we can make sure that history, that bad history doesn't repeat itself. Um, and so just you embodying that and keeping messages and these themes and tropes alive is really important, especially for people who I never got these history lessons. These are all really new to me over the last couple of years of my life. Um, I wouldn't know of them if it wasn't for artists you know, you know, I, I didn't know who, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm having a brain fart, but like Tom of Finland and that art. And once I started going down the rabbit hole of the importance of that art at the time period of which it's in, um, and the prosecution that people went through and what that art meant for people is to like, almost like this beacon of like, Hey, this is your place. This is a safe place for you. Or, Hey, these, 
these are your people that your community does exist and there is things that you're into that are normal and i think art has this really beautiful way of making people feel together um and yeah and you bringing in and being able to be in touch with people from the past is just a talent and a gift uh, so that's 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 something that's really special so yes in a long-winded answer that does answer my question <laughs> Um, so you have some upcoming projects like snapshots uh, for the future lovers and instant gratification. Uh, is there anything you can reveal uh, about these projects and the stories they aim to tell? Yeah, so snapshots is um, a group of works that um, are of abandoned cruising places. So I um, take pictures of abandoned cru cruising places and then I make embroideries of those images. Um, and then... Uh, there's there's like two different types of work that come out of that project. One of them is I recombine um, the embroidery with the photograph to create prints um, that are these images of different sizes that um, uh, that show a kind of emptiness and care at the same time. Um, and uh, uh, I have, I guess I can. I'm not sure if this is going to materialize or not, but my goal for that pro that um, aspect of that project is for those act to actually um, exist as billboards and then um, be shown near a queer place. Um, like here in Portland, a, a really good queer place would be like um, on Southwest Harvey Milk Boulevard um, or what was previously called Vaseline Alley, which is the thriving epicenter of the of portland's queer nightlife back in the 70s 80s and 90s i kind of finally dwindled uh in the mid 2000s and there's one gay bar left it's called scandals um show it some love <laughs> um and then the other thing that i do with those um pictures is i uh, make them into sculptural objects and um, the sculptural objects i take um picture frames that I get from thrift stores. They usually have kitschy sayings on them, like love and family or like, thank God I'm retired or, um, baby. Um, and I, I find these objects to be really, really sad because, um, they're like, they're like empty containers for family. Right. Um, so I take them and I cover them with textile. And then I put these pictures of empty cruising places. And in some, some cases, pictures of my body, um, because I'm trying to appropriate the kind of thrown out notions of family and trying to reclaim them uh, as a as a kind of queer strategy for uh, building solidarity in our community. Um, and uh, if anyone's interested, you can find um, images of a lot of this work on my website, michaelespinozaart.com. That's Espinoza with a Z. Um, and then uh, Instant Gratification is actually my body of work that is Polaroids. Um, so um, you described it beautifully. Um, I wouldn't change a thing about how you described the Polaroids. Um, and I am putting together a rather large collection of those um, that's going to be an exhibition one day soon um, that I can't talk more about. <laughs> but um, but the purpose, I just wanted to add a little more context to the um, Polaroid works. Um, I the reason that I even started using Polaroids in the first place and don't use other forms of photography for that project is that I'm taking pictures of other bodies. Um, I'm perfectly fine taking pictures of my own body with whatever I have. A lot of the pictures of my body that I turn into embroideries are actually from my iPhone. So it's like, I'm not precious about the, um, about the how of making photography in a lot of cases. However, um, I use, Polaroid specifically take pictures of other bodies because it generates an artifact, a thing that exists, that materializes in the place between the bodies that are involved in what I'm trying to portray, which is intimacy. Um, so uh, it was very, it was a very sweet reflection that you say you look at that Polaroid that um, I had you take of me that I gave to you. Um, it is an artifact. It is a thing that represents the transition of energies between you and me in that one particular moment. Um, and there's only one of them. The thing is, is that uh, when you take 
digital pictures. You can, you know, create as many as you want, or you can create none. Like they don't actually exist. You know, they're just like information. They're just, uh, they're just electrons, right? Um, when you take um, an instant photograph, it creates an actual thing. And that thing, unlike 35 millimeter even, can't be indefinitely reproduced. It just exists as that one thing. Um, and I'm really interested in the preciousness of, um, of that kind of photography. And that's why I'm using that um, particular medium to create that body of work that portrays other bodies um, other than my own. Uh, and the, the work, if you look at it, it's very much about intimacy. Like, like you said, yeah, like there's, there's a, there's a post nut glow that you can see in some of the pictures. And, and sometimes I, you know, like I purposely leave a bottle of lube, um, in the frame, or you can see a little bit of cum stain or there's some, there's, um, I'm trying to make it very obvious and very visceral and very potent that, that something important has happened. Um, I say important, um, because like, uh, sex and intimacy are one of the most important ways that we as queer people use to build communities. Like I can't tell you, I can't, I, I can't really think of very many people in my life that I'm closely connected to that aren't like, I'm not at least like somewhat romantically or sexually intimate with in, on some level at some time. Um, like that is how, that is one of the principal ways that I build community. And, and I see you doing that too. I see you building really robust communities using, um, the intimacy that comes from your body. And, um, and the, <laughs> the thing about, um, being a queer person is that, uh, um, our sex practices are usually the, the premise that we're, that is used to attack us, you know, oh, the, the sex that they have is gross. Um, we need to criminalize various sex acts to, uh, discourage them, queer people, um, from, uh, you know, finding solidarity. But the thing is, is that, um, uh, when we do have access to joy, when we do have access to pleasure, we begin to build these robust um, communities and those communities have power and that's what they're afraid of. Um, and so that's what, um, that's what this, like, that's why this queer intimacy project is so important to me. Oh, my heart's going to explode. Uh, <laughs> that's just such good stuff. I, I'll back up start with cruising and it's interesting how there's like two schools of thought. There's like in the moment cruising is this like dark and scandalous and um risky um intense fear-driven erotic thing that people like to do um but when you look at the historical significance of it and the why it exists in the first place um it, it's actually really special um mm -hmm. and it is really intimate uh there there's a time in history before sniffies, before grinder, um, before even phone message boards or whatever, what, there used to be like phone services that I've heard that people used. Um, people had spaces that they would go meet up at and they were kind of known, but not known or avoided, um, and, or not avoided. And those, those were the watering holes. Those were the places that people met each other and found community. Um, and so I, I love that you are able to snap shot some of those places, um, because, uh, it, I think, you know, I just talked about it on another episode about cruising in Australia. It, it, it is a really special practice for a lot of people. And I know the legalities can get complicated and people need to stay safe and make sure that they're respecting consent of those around them. Um, and, but at the same time, I, I just can't deny the importance and cultural significance that it has within our community. So I appreciate you capturing that. Um, and then just like, in it, yeah, it just, it's just good stuff. Um, so your work has been exhibited in various spaces and publications. Can you share some highlights from your recent exhibitions and publications and what they meant to you? Yeah. Um, so, uh, one of the best things about my um, exhibition year 
this year I was like you know, constantly exhibiting all the way from the beginning of February until the end of of April of August. So for a long time. Um, and this was like, uh, I had work in Bay area. I had work in New York. I had work, um, in Portland. I had, um, I just had work up everywhere and, uh, I got to go to a bunch of openings and I got to like meet a lot of people. Um, and my openings are becoming legendarily horny and slutty and, um, like, because my community is like people that I have sex with, like I invite all the, my community and everyone meets each other and has fun. <laughs> so it's really cute. If you ever, um, if you follow me on Instagram, like definitely come to any opening that I invite you to, because it will be worth your while. You will meet someone very cute. Will um, there be an opening? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. There will. Um, so, um, let's see. So, uh, some of the highlights this year, um, I had, uh, show that I put together with my um, really, really good friend and collaborator, Molly Alloy. Um, they are a an artist who works in leather and driftwood and various forms of sewing and various found, uh, found objects. So they make these sculptural objects that are just um, really profoundly ancient feeling. They feel like uh, they feel like this artist is is drawing together some really ancient energy to to make these forms. Um, and it is also also very about a uh, trans and queer identity. And it's very much about the trans and queer experience. Um, so uh, the two of us curated a show and we made these little duets. We took one work from their practice and one work from my practice, put them together. They both had their individual titles, but we gave each pairing a title. Um, and so this is like a curatorial experiment that was extremely successful. We were so happy um, how it turned out. We made 12 of these. And um, so it was 20, 24 artworks and we made 12 of these pairings and we exhibited them at um, the um, Community College, Portland Community College Gallery. Um, I was so cool. Um, so that's one of my favorite shows this year. Also, um, I uh, just joined a co-op um, uh, Carnation Contemporary, and I um, was able to uh, share a Shit. show with one of the co-op artists, who's this um, really fascinating and brilliant uh, digital artist who makes these like um, makes these uh, digital work. There was a, an immersive VR experience in this show, and um, there were some like AI generated um, algorithmic experimental works it was so interesting so that like my work doesn't seem to be technological in that way but it is very technological because all of the um embroidery that i do is actually dictated to me by a computer alg algorithm uh, an algorithm chooses all the colors tells me where to put them and i am just uh kind of a human printer um for this for this machine so um the and also like a lot of the ways in which i have been trained to see as a person, as an artist, has been deeply informed by um, scrolling through Instagram and like being on the internet and and like immersing myself in internet culture. So like, there's no way in which any of my work can be viewed in in, in a way that doesn't that doesn't have this information that is filtered through my existence on the internet. Um, so that was a really cool show. Um, we called it. We titled it Other Self. And the, that was my most recent show. Um, and I just also want to plug that I did a show with Nick Orr and Pepper Pepper at um, Afro Gallery. And it, that was fun. That was like, that was my first like super horny uh, art opening. And I was just like, this is hot. Like I made out with everyone in this room. And like, I know people are just like going to go have sex after this. And like, mission accomplished. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> ah it's just i love art that makes you horny uh <laughs> it really is and you know it's it's interesting to to hear and see your expression of art and i also am seeing a trend right now especially with the flood of creators um who go by the label creator not porn star okay. not mm -hmm. webcam model they literally mm -hmm. call themselves creator myself included and mm -hmm. we call what we do art and you know there's editing there's styling there's expression that comes out and 
you know, there, there are some people that just kind of put up a camera and take pictures and you know what, that's great for them. But there's also these individuals out there that really add a little bit of flair to it. And, and I love it. You know, if it's I just a it. picture of their dick, they have like this really creative way of taking a bunch of shots of their dick and, and I love it. And it, I love there's, it. there's more to it. Does it get me off and make me horny? Sure. Um, <laughs> but I can say that I really do appreciate a creator out there that really puts a little bit of heart into the work that they do. Um, it's, it's, it's just amazing. And I, you know, I, I think that's just something I see a lot in queer people. Um, and they do see it in the hetero community too. You know, I, I do participate in FetLife, uh, which is a mostly heterosexual BDSM online platform. Um, and I do see it in the, actually, you know, I take that back. Most of these people are still identifying as at least homo-flexible or hetero-flexible or bisexual or one of the, God, the list of sexual identities that FetLife has. Like you click, I remember on MySpace and you had gay by straight or not sure <laughs> and, <laughs> i remember that too <laughs> and now i have like three scrolls worth of options um it's great, it's great. i love it because there's nuances and there's so much nuance and I, you know i use this metaphor a lot too uh you know i'm probably going on a tangent here but i love that there's all these different ways to express sexuality because to me i find that there's a huge difference between sexual behavior and sexuality and i i think people get really caught up in sexuality and having to define their sexuality and to me i think sexuality is more like climate and -hmm. sexual behavior is more like the weather Mm -hmm. and if it rains in the desert for a month that desert is still a desert (laughs) oh my gosh that's so true it doesn't become a rainforest if it snows a couple days in july it's still summer that was just a freak yeah. snowstorm in July. You're fine. It's still summer. Now, if it snows for two weeks a year, every year for the next 15 years, maybe, 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 maybe consider maybe not calling it summer anymore. Um, but hey, <laughs> you can call it whatever you want. Um, and so I love all these different labels as people explore the the nuances of the human experience, that they have words and language to, to be able to express themselves that others understand. Um, I've noticed this creator thing too. I've noticed a lot of people like taking uh, their sex and sexuality to be a form of self-expression in the public sphere. And I also really like it when someone does that on a personal level too. There's something really like, there's something that I can't define. I can't put it on a scruff profile and be like, I'm looking for this, but it's this, it's this quality of person that is um creative open-minded um and like wants to have fun like and i don't mean fun like feel good like in their body but i mean like wants to uh inhabit a uh, a presence that is um creative and interesting um and and entertain the the person or people that they're having sex with right um and so and and that as a um as an art form uh in in the creators that you're talking about takes on a new dimension and really takes what would be something that we could do for each other's benefit on our own time and actually opens up possibilities for the people who who get to witness it and i think there's something really beautiful about that um i've been very intentional about including sex workers in my work um, specifically because a lot of the sex workers that I, um, have had the pleasure to meet are very like deeply creative, empathetic, interesting people. And, um, and I don't know what that particular quality is about. I don't know why, um, sex work and creativity are so close together, but I've started kind of defining myself and thinking of myself as a sex worker because I make work about sex and I also like use sex to make work. Um, and and so, um, in that sense, like I definitely am participating really like in a pretty straightforward way in sex work. And then I also do other types of sex work that are like, um, not specifically art related, but I'm always curious about how to create, like use the idea of sex work as a medium to make art. Like what if the labor of sex, like the labor of painting or like the labor of sewing 
Um, what if the labor of sex was an art form? I'm always curious about that question. If any of your have, the listeners have any ideas about that, they're more than welcome to get in touch with me because that's an endlessly fascinating conversation. I'm sitting on my hands. You you just like rang so many bells for me. Um, <laughs> to bring it back to Folsom, that's what I feel like Folsom was, is I felt yeah. like I got to see all these people using sex and to express their creativity mm-hmm. out in the public and share that with each other. And it was just beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Dory was the same thing. And, you know, it, it's, it really is just a fascinating and beautiful thing to, to witness. Um, and me and myself and the work that I do, um, I consider, so I do creator, you know, you can go on my OnlyFans and watch me jerk off if that's what you want to do. But I also have a, as much as I love like anonymous party hookup, that kind of stuff, there's this whole other side of me that I do consider somewhat demi where I like to form connections. And I, I consider my podcast kind of this, like almost like demisexual porn. Um, mm. because like I, I, I just posted on Twitter about a week ago where I was like, you know, I see like, hey, who wants to do a collab? Do you want to do this hot steamy collab? I'm like, hey, do you want to do a collab where I sit down and interview you for an hour and we get to know each other? Because mm-hmm. that's so yeah. sexy. And um, I, I like to include sex workers in my work um, mm-hmm. because I think it's so important. I really want to show, you know, a lot of them in the work that they do, they don't get to be heard. They get to be seen, but they don't get to be heard. And yeah. I, I really try to use this platform as a way to to allow sex workers to be heard, um, which is just something that's really important to me. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, so you've expressed an interest in discussing polyamory, kink dynamics, and queer art. How did these topics relate to your personal experiences and artistic exploration? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You just you, you sort of use the word demi and like, as a as an identity, I don't identify as demi. However, like in a lot of my sex practice, I'm I'm like saying I love you to most people that I have sex with, um, and so and I think that that is that is a poly minded um, approach to sex specifically. Um, I'm not trying to date everyone that I have sex with, but I am trying to form an intimate bond in the container for that sex. Um, and so that's, um, that's, and, and then I document it sometimes, um, or even maybe most of the time. So, uh, that's directly related to how I generate this sense of intimacy in the work. Um, it's very important to me. And, um, it's also, uh, caused me to have a lot of partners, (laughs) Um, which is, um, great. So right now I'm, I'm dating, um, I'm not going to put a number on it. I'm dating multiple people and I have two like, uh, long-term partners. Um, we all get along. Uh, we all know each other. Uh, currently one of my like long-term partners is falling in love with one of my, um, other people I'm dating with. And that's interesting and beautiful. I encouraged it. Um, so this is like, I, I'm just like really into this, um, mixing up of, boundaries in terms of like what a relationship has to look like i um i kind of fundamentally believe in the idea of relationship anarchy so i don't like i i said that i have these long-term partners but i don't have a primary partner i wouldn't um i don't wish to perpetuate hierarchies in the way that i conduct my relationships um my my relationships exist uh in my intentions anyway in the here and now so when i'm when I make time to spend with you, let's say you're my partner, I make time to spend with you. All that exists is you and me and um, our connection. And it doesn't like, we're not reserving uh, the future for each other. We're not saying like, oh, now you have to like buy me flowers next week. And, or now uh, we have to get married and like live together. There's no reservation about the future. It's just about um, existing in an intimate space in the here and now and building on that, uh, every time that we get to enjoy time together. Um, I love that. So I, yeah. Uh, yeah I've, I've heard the relationship escalator metaphor used a few times, but I, mm-hmm. I came up with a new one. Um, Ooh. when I was a kid, I really liked Legos and mm-hmm. I feel like if life is a, if all these experiences of life or relationships is like 
it's like buying a kit for Legos and it's like, here's your, your car or your starship or death star that you're supposed to build. And it comes with a set of directions. Um, and everybody follows the directions and gets the same death star and the same fucking wedding and mm-hmm. the same car and mm-hmm. the same loan on their house and the same debt. <laughs> and, and, and you all get your beautiful set at the end of life with your beautiful retirement, which is beautiful. You know, some people, part of the joy is following the directions and that works for them. But to me, I dump out the whole box. And when I form relationships, I think of each of those individual pieces is like, you know, having a kid or going to a movie together or having sex or becoming friends. And I'm going to build whatever I want to build. And I want to build it with this person. And we're going to just build some beautiful creation out of those blocks. And however it looks is however it looks. Um, and maybe we take it apart. Maybe you take blocks from one, move it on the other. Um, and so I've, I've been using this metaphor of Legos for a while now instead of the escalator and what you said is just so beautiful and aligns with that. Um, because I, I do, I think one of the beautiful things about polyamory, I identify as a solo polyamorous as like being able to just let relationships be what they are. There is always this pressure of labels when you call someone and we always know about like the boyfriend label and all of a sudden there's all those expectations. That's when people are familiar with that comes with other things too, like calling someone your friend or your mm-hmm. best friend or your lover, or your friend with benefits, you immediately all of a sudden put these like constraints and expectations on what that relationship is supposed to be. And it puts yeah. pressure. And now you feel like you have to be there for this person in this situation, or they're not the person that you should reach out to, to talk about this one thing. Um, and I hate that. I hate that. If, no. if a relationship, and more, I mean, more often than not, like, the way that I define what boyfriend means or the way that I define what partner means um, comes with a set of expectations that are purely my own. And you, you will have your own definition of what all that means. And we're, we're probably not going to talk about that. Like what does partner mean? What does boyfriend mean? Like what exactly does that mean? We could talk about it all day and all night and probably still hold assumptions that um, we're not communicating out loud. And, um, yeah, those yeah, those labels are, are treacherous. Um, we have to we have to practice very intentional communication um, to make any relationship any relationship at all work. Um, I think that my my kink beyond just being intimacy period um, is like for like communication. I just like I really like the process of communicating and learning how to communicate and learning um, you know like learning about other people's communication styles. Um, and uh that that's actually kind of i'm being silly <laughs> it doesn't actually turn me on but i the the actual mechanics of communicating like like being affirmative and like um being curious and sharing and listening like those things really do turn me on um if <laughs> talking about talking i don't know if that really <laughs> it does you know one of the hottest things someone's <laughs> ever said to me was hey i really want to hang out with you this weekend but I was just thinking about it. I, I think I really need to go on a date with myself and mm. spend some time with myself this weekend and kind of recenter. Um, it's not anything with you, but it's just it's something I think I need right now. And I was like, I'm so fucking turned on right now. <laughs> oh my God. That is, that is super romantic. That is, oh my God, panty dropper right there. Love I'm that. I'm like, oh, yeah, please take all the time you want. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Uh, so in the classic fashion of flipping the script, is there anything you want to ask me or you're curious around me and, and myself? Yes. Um, I know that I'll have endless opportunities to ask you all of the questions and, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you in a, in a more deeper fashion um, as, as time goes on. Um, but there's one thing I've always been curious about, and it's that... Um, not only did you, you just mentioned solo poly, um, which is, is a concept that I'm comfortable, like, like very familiar with, but actually I, I really want to know about self coloring. I want to know, um, where you got that idea, um, uh, and what that is about for you. Cause it's, it's super cool. I know tons of like people in kink dynamics that are colored and it's a, it's a very like meaningful thing to be colored. And so I think it's just really powerful that you've decided to self-color and I want to know more about that. Yeah. Uh, it sends goosebumps on my spine just thinking about my color. 
Um, my collar, it's, it's really ironic. Um, how it was given to me. And <laughs> when my ex-husband and I had started dating, uh, a gentleman, um, he was a really nice guy and him and I had a really nice evening and he talked about his collar and just like the look of it and the fashion and that it felt powerful. Um, and so he gave me one that he had made, uh, but not as a collaring. And there was a small, like he gave it to me and I felt really special about it. Uh, there was a moment with that. Um, but it was really just like a fashion thing. And fast forward a couple of weeks, the sad part of the story is that pride. We were talking about being a throuple on the Sunday night and on Tuesday, my ex-husband asked for a divorce and by Thursday he moved out. Um, and I adore both of them. They're, they're both great human beings and they're actually going to go off and have a life together now. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, but I really wanted when I was hurt, I wanted to turn that kind of into something of my own. And I reclaimed that power and that collar as something as my own. And at the time when I was going out, I, I didn't want to find anybody. I wanted to go out and experience things. Um, but I was very proud to be single. Um, and this was before I really identified as solo polyamorous. And it really just started as that, as I just wanted some kind of signal out there that, Hey, I'm, I'm really not looking right now. And I was very codependent in my, uh, marriage, especially towards the end. Um, and so I really was taking a page out of some self-help books, um, and, working on my attachment style where I used to be a really anxious attachment. Um, and I wanted to date myself. And so the, the tokenism that came from my collar was me really wanting to date myself and that I needed to become my own primary partner. Um, I was my own. It was just this way of like saying like when I can have other partners and I do have a bio dog. That's what you just heard in the background. <laughs> um, I hear in polyamory all the time. People are like, yeah, I, you know, I have other partners, but this is my anchor partner. I love that, that phrase because it's the person I have children with. It's the person I have a mortgage with. It's not that they're more important than my other partners. Um, but they are kind of the person I have these, these really important con con contractual obligations with that make them very, very important. Um, and so my collar became kind of a way to say that I am my own anchor partner. Mm -hmm. Um, and as the year went on, um, it just became more and more powerful. Uh, it became more and more special until, you know, I, I actually, I wore it to work really proudly. And one of my, uh, my manager actually asked me once like, Hey, what's that mean? Kind of knowing what it meant, but people were kind of wondering and talking at work. And when I explained it, people at work thought it was really special and it's really fun when I am in my other job and customers are like, Oh, who has the key? And I'm like, I, I have the key. Um, I keep my key on me at all times. And when I'm having a scene with someone, I will use the phrase of like, I'll borrow it out for the night. You can borrow my key, but I'm taking it back in the morning. Um, if I'm going to go into like a sub dom role play, I actually did borrow my key out to someone once and he didn't give it back. Um, won't do that again. Um, <laughs> but it, it is, it's, it's become this really special token of redefining. It's a, it's a power that I'm defining that I am the one who, who put it on, on my own neck. Um, it's not chastity by any means. It's just a reminder that I am in control of me and I am my own Dom. Um, mm. And I get to, I get to make the choices in my life. Um, and yeah, and that's where that, that came from. It's just been, and it, it is, it's, I take it just as serious as someone being collared. Um, when I hear stories and see collaring ceremonies, um, and I hear about other people being collared, I don't take collaring myself lightly or mm -hmm. is this fashion statement or playful. I, it is just as serious to me as I see anybody else who is being collared by somebody else. Which also goes to say, if I ever am to give out my key to someone, um, that's going to be a very important, very important moment for me. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really powerful. I, I mean, I knew that it was really meaningful and important to you from reading your poem. Um, 
And uh, I just, I think that there's something we could all learn from the idea that like, that like we, we keep the promises for ourselves, you know, because to me, coloring is about um, really formalizing a dom sub role in a, in a kind of uh, whole life way. And so what you, what you're describing is that you're keeping promises to yourself about how you wish to exist and how wish you wish to hold power in your own life. And I think that's really, really powerful. That is an idea that I'm going to carry with me for a long time. And I can't wait to like, um, have this discussion with other people, especially people in dom sub relationships and people in the kink scene, because I, I just, I think that is a transformational idea. Kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah. It's one of the, I'm, I'm not looking for an anchor partner, but I'm not against it happening. I'm not like avoiding it by any means. Um, but I'm not looking for someone to complete me. And by being self-collared, I feel like I'm sending a message, you know, through nonverbal communication that I am complete as my own person. And my hope is to find another person someday or persons who also are complete as their own selves. And I would like to compliment each other. And I don't want to be another half to create a whole. Um, it's just not something I'm looking for. And my marriage was beautiful. There's a lot of great stuff in like any relation. When it relationships end, um, as much as pain and heartache that comes with that, I still look at the overall experience as a as a as an experience. And I'm really glad and happy I got to experience that. Um, from start to end, um, because it, it makes us who we are. And my divorce was my first breakup. And so there was a lot of learning that came along with that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's been completely transformative and a lot of people don't know, but like when I collared myself was also when I changed my name, there was kind of like a, I know it sounds corny, but there was a Phoenix rebirth kind of thing that happened in my life. And a part of me died. Um, that year I, I hid estranged from part of my family, um, and my, my dad's side of my family, which is a heartache that I have to carry with me for the rest of my life. I had to put down a puppy that I owned, which was really hard. And I lost my grandparents, all of my grandparents in one year. And then I got a divorce. And so it was a rough year that I needed to just, I needed to come out of that with, and be in control of myself. And so long winded way to say like, that's that, that the caller is just an extremely, extremely special thing to me. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know anyone who doesn't take a caller very seriously. Um, because I just, I guess I just know a lot of, you know, old school kink people, um, old school, you know, doms and subs. Uh, and I do, I, there's something kind of old fashioned and kind of traditional and almost like kind of like sweet and tender and like kind of wholesome about the whole like protocol of like the kind of um leather leather marriage uh <laughs> family dynasty creation um i'm i'm like really into it i've been to collarings like um you know i have i have a dom that is colored you know it's just like there's like i think it's really sweet i think it's about creating these communities i was talking about at the beginning you know um, it's these intentional ways in which pe queer people have appropriated the the kind of substance of family that hasn't worked for us um, as queer people and um, have appropriated it in a way that is meaningful and useful for our lives. And I, I just, I feel like you're taking that one more step um, with this concept of, of um, color, self-coloring. I think it's really cool. Thank you. Well, it has been my pleasure to be able to interview you on the show and just really appreciate you being here and sharing your art and passion. Um, I just think you're a wonderful person and thank you so much for existing in this world and sharing a piece of you with everybody. Oh my God, you too. You're so sweet. And um, I just, I want to remind everyone, I talked about um, HIV and AIDS today. I just want to um, just make one last plug. The, the, HIV and AIDS crisis is not over. Um, um, I don't ever want to come off as making it sound like it, like that HIV and AIDS existed in the past. That's like one of the most important takeaways for me. So I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that um, before we uh, 
And, and then I also just wanted to say that you are a beautiful light. We are so lucky to share community together. And, um, and like, I see you as a powerful person who connects people and, um, keep doing it. It, it's very, very, very important. And it pertains to our survival. Like this is, this is how we survive a world. We build these beautiful communities that we bring people together, keep doing it. Um, and you can always lean on me for support. Okay, babe. Thank you so much. I love you too.